Well, hadn't the worship been especially great uh, today, I'd like to once again say thank you to all of those stage players and behind-the-scenes players who for the last 10 weeks now, this is the 10th Sunday uh, that we've been meeting together in this virtual kind of way, and this leadership team has proven itself to be a, a team of superstars. They're here week in and week out and uh, having to prepare just as much as they would on a normal Sunday for the most part. And uh, we are so very grateful uh, to each of them. And so as you come back in the days ahead, be sure to find uh, many of them as you can and tell them how much you appreciate them because they are surely deserving uh, of all the accolades that we could give them. I'm excited about this message today and I invite you to Take a copy of God's Word, if you have one with you, and be finding Exodus chapter 18. Going to come back to the book of Exodus uh, today and revisit an important theme that we started our year with this year, namely, who's your one? Several weeks ago, I was invited by my friends and colleagues over at our Spanish Trail campus to spend a Sunday evening uh, with our college students who attend our Spanish Trail campus. And I looked forward to that. Judy and I had a wonderful evening of fellowship that went into the night, and uh, it was a great time. Always, you know, a little bit skittish about college students because they are smart young people. And I knew that they were going to grill me every which way from Sunday, and it wasn't quite that bad, but they're sharp. And I remembered as we finished uh, a wonderful meal and all got assembled, there was I don't know, somewhere between 40 and, and 50 college students plus a smattering of leaders that were crammed into the house that we were meeting at. And the first thing they did was put me on what was called the hot seat. And I didn't know that was coming. And so I began to sweat bullets. And one of the leaders came and sat by me and held a pretend microphone in his hand and began to ask me a series of questions, rapid fire, one right after another, virtually all of them personal in nature, something to do with my life, my background, my family, my interests. You get the picture. It was a way to get those kids a little bit more intimately acquainted with their pastor. And so it was a great time. But right out of the gate, I was caught off guard by question number one. When the host holding the pretend microphone asked me this question, Pastor Jim, who's your one? And then he stuck this invisible microphone right in my face. And I'm so thankful that I had an answer for him because at that time we were engaged, and we still are for that matter, though we haven't had an opportunity really to emphasize it, in an aggressive ministry of evangelism and personal witnessing called Who's Your One? We ask everybody to identify one person that they could pray for, pray about, and be intentional about sharing the gospel with. Not to count seven billion people in the world, but simply to count one, someone that they could be a person of influence with in order to seek to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And I have a one, and hopefully you do, and hopefully you're still praying, and hopefully you're still having the opportunity of sharing, because when we come back together again, we're going to get right back after it. But I want you to know this morning that identifying a one is a very biblical thing, and we see a wonderful example of that from the life of our good friend Moses, back in one of the most important 
events in the history of the people of God, namely the exodus of Israel from 400 years of Egyptian bondage. I bet you didn't know that Moses had a one. He surely did, and we can read about it right here in Exodus chapter 18, beginning in verse number one. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now this morning I want us to take a look at this important passage of Scripture in which we find Moses connecting with one man who spiritually was lost and separated from God and made it his mission in life to try and connect that man with the holy God of heaven. It was a member of his own family. Here in Exodus chapter 18, Moses is encamped near the base of Mount Sinai, the very place where God had originally called him way back in Exodus chapters 3 and 4 at the burning bush. That same place, Moses has now come full circle and he's now at the base of Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai, the Sinai desert. And this will be, of course, the mountain that Moses would go upon and have a face-to-face meeting with God and eventually come down with the law of God, the commandments of God on tablets of stone. They're not far, Moses is not, or he's not far from where the rest of the uh, people of Israel are encamped at Rephidim. Last week, if you were with us, you know that the people of Israel faced an enemy outside the camp for the first time in these wilderness wanderings, in their exodus away from Egypt. They faced the Amalekites, and the Lord brought them an improbable but very powerful victory out there in the desert. 
Moses has separated himself from Israel for a time. Israel would eventually catch up with Moses and encamp right there where he is now in Exodus chapter 18 at the base of the great mountain of God called Sinai. And it's there in our text this morning that an important and very consequential family reunion takes place. But let me just say this is a story that's much more than simply being about a family reunion. It's about something hugely significant that happened in the context of the family reunion. Namely, it's a story about the importance of being willing to share the good news of the gospel of God, to share the good news of what God has done in your life and what God has done in the ministry of the gospel for the entire world. And doing that begins principally for all of us in our own home. One of the things that you need to notice is that this is the first time that we've heard about Moses' immediate family uh, for quite some time in the book of Exodus, really since the time he left the family shepherding business way back in Exodus chapter 4. You remember Moses was the principal herdsman in his father-in-law Jethro's uh, sheep business. And yet he receives permission from Jethro to leave that business and follow the call of God all the way back to Egypt from whence he had come in order to give a message to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the most powerful man in the entire world. That was akin to being president of the United States back in those days. And Jethro responds by giving his blessing to Moses and releasing Moses together with his wife and his sons to do God's bidding there before the Egyptian court. And at some point, the, de the details about which we really don't know, at some point after Israel had been released by Pharaoh to begin their journey to the promised land, at some point Moses sent his wife and his two boys back to Jethro in the land of Midian. Now that's recorded here in verse 2 of our text. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. Now the problem is we don't know exactly when that happened. Uh, we don't know if it happened early in the Exodus or if it happened more recently as they got closer and closer to Jethro's home. And because maybe they were in the neighborhood now, he just went ahead and sent his wife and two boys on ahead to make preparations for the arrival of the people of Israel. We really can't know for sure, but what we can know is that the stage is now set for a full-on family reunion. And when that meeting happens, here's the thing that I want you to know today. When that family meeting happens, Moses has got one thing on his mind, at least at first, and that is he wants to deliver the gospel, the good news of what God had done for his people. He wants to deliver that gospel, that good news to an important member of his family, namely Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, I think it's important that we remember a little bit of the context about the person the Bible calls Jethro, because I think it's important, if you don't know it already, to remember that Jethro wasn't a Jew like Moses or the people of Israel. He was a Midianite. He was a foreigner to the people of the Jews. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us not only was he a Midianite, he was a priest 
of Midian. Not only a shepherd, a bivocational Midianite pagan priest. Because he worshiped not the one true God, not the true and living God, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He worshiped the tribal Midianite gods, which means, of course, that he was lost. He's a lot like the New Testament example of Nicodemus, a very religious man, but it is very possible to be religious and lost apart from God at the same time, and that was Jethro. I don't think there's any doubt that before, Jeth- or before Moses rather left Jethro the first time to follow the call of God, that they'd had any number of conversations about religious things in times past. I, I think it's a safe assumption to make that Moses never bowed down to worship those Midianite gods of his father-in-law because he knew the true and the living God. Moses would have probably communicated to his father-in-law the customs of his ancestors and would have told him about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But to this point, Jethro would have seen God not as an exclusive God, not as the only wise God, but simply as another local deity to be placed along the panoply of the Midianite deities that he'd spent his entire life not only worshiping himself, but leading his family and his community to worship as well. He may have seen God as God, but as a God, really no different than the rest of the gods that he worshiped. I know a lot of people, maybe even most, still think that way today. The philosophy is, hey, whatever floats your boat, worship whomever you like, worship whatever you like, even worship ever how many gods you like, any way you like. Just be sincere about whatever it is or whomever it is or how many ever it is that you choose to worship. For most people, In our Western religious context anyway, all religions and all means of religious expression are pretty much equivalent, pretty much equal. Your truth, my truth, we define it as we go along. But let me just say, who you worship and how you worship really does matter to God. And you need to know it because the Bible says, and God will tell Moses, put this at the top of the list of the most important things that these people are going to need to remember. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and you are to have no other gods before me. He's an exclusive God. Now, for those of us on this side of the cross, we know that salvation is exclusive. That it's not multi-dimensional. It's not optional. The Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 12, For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus. Jesus is the true and exclusive way to God. I myself and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And nowhere is that understanding more urgent than it relates to the people in our own families, in our own families, in our own immediate relational context. Now, I know what people say. I've heard it. I've experienced it even in my own life. It's harder to witness to 
your family members and just about anybody else. And I understand that. I get it. I know the rationale. I know the reasons behind why people say it. But let me just make this statement this morning. Y'all still with me? Say amen today. Let me hear you say it. Amen. Here's the thing. Nobody's going to love your family members any more than you will. Nobody. Nobody's going to have opportunities to connect with your family. Nobody's going to be able to make spiritual inroads to your family. Nobody's going to be able to connect with your family. Frankly, few people, if any, are going to be more influential with members of your family about spiritual things than you will. Yes, timing is important. I get that. Situations are important. The context is important. No question about it. My point simply this morning is that nobody should care, nobody's likely to care more about where your family spends eternity than you are. And that's why sharing the gospel at home is one of the most important callings that God gives to born-again followers of Jesus Christ. It is crucial, vital, and absolutely important. And we see an example of Moses doing that very thing here. Now, with respect to that, I think that there are a couple of important principles that we can see here from Moses' example with his own father-in-law. First, we need to respect and love others regardless of their belief. And you'll have some family members that, listen, they've got a, they've got so, everybody's got some kind of a belief system. And you'll have family members that have a certain belief system, even if they say they don't believe in God. They believe in things. They believe in something. And everybody's got a belief system. And here's the thing, you don't need to let that to drive, uh, you don't need to allow that to drive a wedge in your relationship with your family members. You need to love them unconditionally. You need to learn to laugh with them anyway. You need to learn to embrace them and to be there for them. We need to respect and love others inside our family or outside of our family, not use them as targets, not ridicule them, not always want to argue with them all the time but respect them and love them regardless of their beliefs. In verse 7 here, the Bible says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. And what's the first thing he does? He doesn't try to engage him in an argument, but he bows down and kisses him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went in to the tent. I mean, consider with me, if you would, the enormity and the significance of Moses' newfound position as the leader of the people of Israel. I mean, he's the God-called leader of some two million children of Israel. He's the mediator of the Word of God. He's got the responsibility of delivering God's Word to the people of God. What a high honor and privilege that is. An incredible, important calling. He's the conduit of the power of God. God has channeled his power throughout the Exodus up to this point through his God-called agent whose name was Moses. Not going to be too long but he, before he comes the administrator of God's law. God's going to literally write the law on tablets of stone with Moses right there in front of him, and then he's going to hand them to Moses to take down the mountain to deliver to his people. Moses was the chief justice of the people. He had this great responsibility of hearing cases and settling disputes and arbitrating differences of all kinds among all different types of people. And here's the thing. 
with all of that calling and all of that responsibility and all of this position of importance, Moses is not so full of himself that he's forgotten who he is or where he's come from or who really is important in his life. He's had this meteoric rise from an octogenarian 80-year-old shepherd out on the backside of the desert to the most important leader in the history of the people of God. This side of, that side of Jesus Christ. Talk about a meteoric rise. And yet that meteoric rise hadn't catapulted him past his roots, past his raisin, past his family. Some 12 times throughout Exodus chapter 18, 12 times, Moses, who's writing the book of Exodus, identifies Jethro as his father-in-law, 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 Moses' father-in-law, over and over and over again. Why? Because that's Moses' way of communicating to his people that even though Jethro was an outsider spiritually to the things of God, Jethro was still an insider to Moses. He may have been a priest of Midian, but Jethro was still a friend of Moses. You know, sometimes in our desire to win people, we can try to make it our mission in life to straighten them out. And that's what a lot of God's people do, family member or non-family member. We know somebody, we get close to somebody, friends, colleagues, associates, whatever the case might be. They don't know the Lord. They're off track. We know they're off track. They're not convinced they're off track. And so we got to straighten them out. And so that's what our mission becomes, not so much to get the gospel to them, but try to straighten them out, try to get them to act in a new kind of way in order to somehow become part of God's family by some type of ethical or moral change in their life. And so sometimes in that effort to straighten people out, rather than approaching them lovingly and kindly, we can come across cold and rigid. We can come across legalistic. We can come across very judgmental. That's why so many people have a hard time with the church. It's because they know individual people that go to church, and this is the way that they see them. Harsh, rigid, rule followers, not very yielding, not very willing to listen, always wanting to talk all the time, but never really willing to listen to what their point of view is. And so they come across harsh and and, and critical and unloving. And the end result is the people that we love, that we have good intentions about, end up being unresponsive to the gospel of God. Not necessarily because they're not open to hearing the truth of the gospel, but simply because there's been a wall erected that they themselves have erected because of our approach to them. And that's why it's so important that we ourselves learn to do exactly what the Bible says that we should do. Honor your father and your mother. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Treat your family members with warmth and unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, absolute hospitality, a willingness to step into the breach and meet needs where there is a need. Because the Bible says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Love seeks 
no record of wrongs. But not only do we need to respect and love one another, there's another truth here, and that is that we need to tell people the truth about salvation. Seems like the Bible says something about speaking the truth in love. And so as we approach people lovingly and warmly and tenderly, we need to recognize that that love and that tenderness and that mercy does indeed open up an avenue where people will be more receptive to hear the spiritual truth that's changed our life that comes from the heart. So truth is the flip side of love, particularly when it comes to our role as ambassadors for Christ and witnesses to Jesus Christ. Moses loves and respects Jethro. You see that very clearly in the text. But here's the thing. He also tells Jethro the truth, doesn't he? He gives him the good news of what God has done in the life of the people of Israel. Now, unlike you and me, whenever we share the gospel, one thing Moses doesn't do with Jethro is tell him about Jesus. That's, you know, heart and soul front and center when it comes to our sharing the gospel with people. But that would have been totally foreign to Moses because he didn't know who Jesus was. The Savior has not come yet. The law has not even been given for crying out loud. So instead, even though he can't tell him about Jesus per se, what he does is he gives Jethro his own personal testimony about the power of God in his own life and in and through the life of his people. And in that sense, we can legitimately say that Moses gave his father-in-law the gospel. He told Jethro the good news of God's love, the good news of God's grace. He told him the good news of God's incredible power to break the chains of darkness and to break the bondage of slavery and to take people to a land of freedom and connection and reconciliation with God. That's made clear right out of the gate in our text. Verse 1, Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, watch this, heard. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, he heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. And how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, how are we to presume Jethro knew all of that? Well, the answer is because Moses told him, right? That's how he knew. Look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had brought them out. How the Lord had delivered them. Now, Moses isn't specific about exactly what he told his father-in-law. These are all very general terms here in Exodus 18 and verse 8. But I think it's safe to assume that he told him as much as he possibly could about everything that he's taken time, Moses himself, to tell us in his writing of the Exodus story. He told him about the signs and wonders of God, don't you think? He told them about the great plagues, all ten of them, that God had brought on the nation of Israel. He told them about the Passover. 
told him about the journey away from Egypt. I'm sure that Moses told his father-in-law about the incredible pillar of cloud that led the people by day and the awesome and dramatic pillar of fire that led the people by night. Don't you think that he told his father-in-law about how God miraculously parted the waters of the great sea, leading all two million of those people across on dry ground and then bringing the sea back together again right on top of the greatest mounted cavalry in the world, that of the army of the nation of Egypt? Don't you think that Moses probably told his father-in-law about the manna that had fallen from heaven and about the quail that came in on the east wind, about the water that was provided to a parched, dry, barren people trying to make their way as emaciated slaves through a dry, parched, barren land? Don't you think that he told them about the most recent victory that they'd had in battle, an improbable victory over a well-stocked, well-armed Amalekite army when they had no weaponry of their own and themselves had never fought a battle in their life? And don't you know that as he did that, He was careful to keep the attention exclusively not on himself but on God because really when you read the book of Exodus, you find that very clearly that this is a book principally not about Moses, not about the people of Israel. This is a book about God and the power of God to deliver people from oppressive conditions, harshness, slavery, take them to a land of freedom when they learn to be obedient and to live obediently in relation to the call of God. I think that's what Moses spent a good deal of time testifying to his father-in-law about. Not about himself, but keeping the emphasis on God. Here's who God is. (laughs) Here's what God has done to take a people held in bondage and break the chains of bondage, leading them to freedom and salvation, and ultimate deliverance to a better land and a better place to come. Boy, that should sound very familiar to you, because what that is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. Now, let me just make one thing clear, having said all of that. God has given all of us who are born again in Jesus Christ a story. We all have a story. We all have a testimony of what the Lord has done for us. But let me have you keep in mind There's a big difference between sharing your story and sharing the gospel. Sometimes in our eagerness to share what the Lord has done for us, we can make our testimony more about us than it is about God. Talk about the events in our lives and really never hardly give God a nod. And so having a gospel conversation, remember, means sharing the truth of what God has done in order to redeem us, of what God has done in order to liberate us. It's sharing the truth of what God has done to forgive our sins and to draw us in a right and eternal relationship with himself and to give us a promised inheritance that we take with us beyond the grave. Paul said in Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's important. Because as meek and humble as Moses had been to this point, we have no reason to believe that he was boasting about anything to his father-in-law other than the power of God to save and the power of God to deliver anybody 
who would simply hear the voice of God and follow the will of God. And all of that, of course, leads to the question, so how does Jethro respond? Man, I'm glad you asked that question because we get a little glimpse of Jethro's response along with a glimpse of Moses' willingness to share. And I think the answer to the question, how does Jethro respond, is clear, namely, here's what the pastor thinks, Jethro became a true believer in the one living and true God of heaven and earth because of the testimony of Moses. And you know why I believe that's true? Because we see Jethro expressing three very important things that are necessary for salvation then as well as for salvation today. Let me give them to you quickly as we wrap up this morning. The first thing that we see Jethro doing is expressing faith. Jethro expresses faith. Look at verse 10. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Calls God by name, Yahweh. Blessed be Jehovah, the God of Israel, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of Egyptians. Watch verse 11. Watch it very carefully. Now I know that Yahweh, Jehovah, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Oh my. You know what that is? That's a statement of faith right there. The priest and the shepherd of Midian, Jethro, had spent his entire life serving nothing but other gods. But now he's confronted with the truth, and now he knows the truth, and now he has to respond to the truth. And in his response to the truth, Jethro testifies to the truth. When he calls God the Lord, don't miss that. And he does so twice in those verses we just read. He's calling God by the covenant name of God to his people Israel. Yahweh. Yahweh. The God of Israel is greater than all gods. I'm just saying that's a confession of faith by any other name. And it's the very thing a lost person has to confess today in order to be saved. Only we do it by the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when a person is legitimately saved, you know what they say? Now I know that Jesus Christ is greater than all God. Somebody shout amen this morning. That's what a saved person confesses, that Christ is Lord and that Christ is greater than all gods. That's an expression of faith. Second, Jethro expresses joy. This is another thing that always happens when a person is born again. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel, and that he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. That word rejoiced is a word that means deep delight, deep delight, not just a cold, expressionless, intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, though you need to have that, but not just that. Jethro's response to the testimony to God of his son-in-law Moses is a soul-penetrating joy. It's a celebration of rejoicing at what God has done. Jethro, it's like Jethro hears the testimony of 
of Moses and he's taking it in and he's shaking his head and he's blinking his eyes and he's thinking in his spirit and maybe even saying it was mouth. man this is great this is unbelievable I want a piece of this action I want to know this God I want to serve this God no other God that I've ever been exposed to has ever done anything remotely as powerful as what you're testifying to me now, that doesn't mean that you'll necessarily start dancing and turning cartwheels whenever God saves you. Salvation is a very personal experience. Some are hyper-emotional. Some are emotion-less. Earlier this year in the wintertime, I finished reading a biography of the great pastor theologian, the British pastor theologian, John R. W. Stott. He's been a mentor to me through his books and writing, through his preaching, for many, many years, he died a few years ago at the age of 90 and went home to be with the Lord. But I still continue to be blessed by John Stott through everything that he has written. And in that biography that I was reading, it tells of his conversion at the age of 17 while a boarding student in high school at the, at the uh, renowned rugby school in rugby, England, called the rugby school not because of the sport rugby, but because of where it is in rugby, England. There's a city there called rugby, and rugby is like Eton. It's a very exclusive boarding private school. And John Stott went to a, Chris, a Christian club meeting that they had on campus one evening, and one of the leaders shared the gospel at that meeting. And when Stott got home, he knelt by his bed and there in the privacy of his own room, he asked the Lord to save him. And then in the book, it said, at that point, he got up, climbed into the bed, pulled the covers over, turned out the light, and went right to sleep. <laughs> Nothing, no, no tears, no breaking out in spontaneous laughter. Nothing emotional or spectacular about it. But afterwards... John Stott confessed that everything about his life had changed. The author says, walking down a street in rugby, John had a new feeling that he was in love with everyone and the world seemed to smile back. I had, he wrote, no enemies left. You know what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, don't you? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's genuine salvation. It brings great joy that changes everything about the way you see people and the way you respond to life. And then very quickly and finally, Jethro expresses worship. He expresses faith. He expresses joy. But we know he's born again because he expresses worship. That's revealed in verse 12. And Jethro Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now, it's one thing when a person sings and rejoices when God saves them. But the most convincing sign, I think, of salvation is when a person starts to worship God by giving. Sacrificial giving. That's how Jethro demonstrated that his salvation was real. He worships God, not simply by rejoicing, but he gave something back to God in response to the goodness of God. He sacrificed as a means of honoring the name 
of God, the true and living God that he had now come to know. And he did it together with the worshiping community to which he now belonged. He didn't do it by himself. He did it together with his believing family. Because now, not only does he have fellowship with God because of this newfound faith, he has fellowship with others who share the same faith. Which reminds us yet again that the gospel is for all people. Here's Jethro, this Midianite, not a Jew, a pagan priest at that. And yet, he wasn't beyond the reach of the good news of God's power to save. All this happened because Moses had a one. He had one man on his heart, someone in his family, someone close to him, but far from God. And Moses loved him enough to tell him the truth about the most important reality in all of life. Our God is, our God loves, and our God is mighty to save. And friend, make no mistake, our mighty God, this mighty God we serve, has the power to save your life too.